Welcome back to Real Talk Torah, courtesy of the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg. For today's Shear and Issue, we are going to talk about a very interesting subject which is not commonly spoken about, and that is the topic of puns and poetry in the Torah. We'll see exactly what I mean about this. Uh, but I'll just mention quickly that this topic has been on the schedule for a couple of weeks, but for one reason or another, we were just not able to get around to it. Last week in particular was due to the fact that we devoted a special Real Talk Torah to the conversation with PUA, the organization that serves Klal Yisrael in the areas of fertility and halacha. We had a special guest, Rabbi Elon Siegelman, the Rabbinic Advisor of America for PUA, who joined us for a very interesting interview and conversation about fertility and halacha, and he also spoke about Pua's campaign, which um, was launched last weekend in Baruch Hashem. They were able to reach their $1 million goal, thanks to everybody who donated. So, Yashikach, thank you so much to those who gave to Pua, helped them reach their goal, and also thank you on behalf of the future parents of Klal Yisrael. Um, you know that's what uh, that's what Pua is all about, and um, it was a great conversation. You can go back and listen to it. But Baruch Hashem, you should just know that they were able to reach their goal. Okay, and anyway, as I mentioned, moving over to today's topic, um, puns and poetry in the Torah. So as I mentioned, this has been on the schedule for a couple of weeks now. Now, what schedule am I referring to? So the schedule that I posted on the database podcast WhatsApp group. So while we're here, I'll let you know that we in fact do have a WhatsApp group. And it's not one of those WhatsApp groups that's buzzing all day long. Um, only the admin, which is um, I, the admin posts a weekly schedule, which is subject to change. And every time there is an update pertaining to the schedule or an upload of a sheer, a workshop, any kind of podcast, so you'll be notified there. If you want to be a part of this WhatsApp group, all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data than base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Same place to make a sponsorship or any dedication for the Shiorim and the Harbatzis Torah that we do here. So you can reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. To get into the WhatsApp group, just email me, leave your phone number there, letting me know that you want to be a part of the WhatsApp group, and I will immediately add you to that group so you'll be able to get all the notifications um, that you need for the database podcast. Okay, now let's actually talk about our topic. So puns and poetry in the Torah. So for those of you who know me, my family, this this subject is something that's very close to my heart. Uh, my family, we are very into puns. We very much enjoy wordplay and things of that nature. My 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 close circle of Friends will know that as well, and maybe from this podcast you've been able to observe that a little bit. And, I don't know, for some, for some people this is something that's very irritating. Um, you know, um, a good pun, or a not-so-good pun. Now, the not-so-good puns I hear, but even the good puns, there are people that get irritated by that for some reason. And, quite frankly, I, I don't completely get it. But between you, my listeners, and me, uh, my, my, my feeling is that people who get irritated by those puns are really just the individuals that regret the fact that they didn't think of it first or the fact that when you said it they didn't immediately get the pun they, they didn't catch on and they didn't get the punchlines and once they figured it out so they, they're really just mad at themselves they're not mad at, the, at the, the individual who made that really awesome pun but anyway enough about my feelings about puns 
What I really want to focus on is the Torah's feeling on this thing, the Torah's opinion, as it were, on puns. Because you may be surprised, but the Torah apparently has high value and high esteem for this concept of puns. It's not that just the Torah every now and then will, you know, will throw out something that has some effect of wordplay. But wordplay is not, and again, not just a feature, but it is actually a staple of the way the Chumash and really all of Tanakh works. The whole basis, or at least one of the main bases for drash, for homiletical exegesis, learning a lesson based on specific word choice. So one of the bases for that is, in fact, the concept of wordplay. When you have a very specific choice of words, and that, that choice of words apparently connects to something larger than just that context, that in a sense, is like a pun, but certainly there's a poetic effect. So as you see, I'm not really talking about the times in the Torah or in Tanakh where there is a poem or a shira, right? There are ten shiros um, um, that that Chazal identify. And so, you know, the most famous of them is probably Aziashir. We had one in last week's Parsha, Parsha Shukas. We had shiras Haba'er. You know, I'm not referring to that necessarily or the kinds of poetic um, 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 texts that we find in Koheles or Mishle or throughout Tehillim, for example, or even in this week's Parsha, Parsha's Balak, where Bilam is issuing his, his prophecies, which are referred to in the Chumash as Mishalim, as parables or, 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 other, or poems. So, you know, you have that, and I'm not necessarily referring to that. I'm, speci- I'm referring specifically to a, um, a certain nature of, of word choice that you find even outside of those poetic texts. So there, you know, one example, just because we are in Parshas Balak, I'll give you one example from Parshas Balak because, you know, we're, we're here anyway. And I'll, I'll preface with the fact that I really feel like I could have given this sheer on any Parsha, and it could be I'm venturing very much, but I, I will, you know, make that venture, um, and I, I'll venture to say that any parsha I could have given this shear on, and I would have had something to share with you about the significance of wordplay and the usage of puns in chumash. But the example that I have here is in Matovu Olacha Yaakov Mishkin Yisrael. So even though you know, it's it's not that line, it's gonna be the next Pasuk, but even in that line you find a parallelism um, you know, Amatovu Ohalecha, the Ohalecha Yaakov, and the Mishkan Yisrael. We have the name of the abode, either an Ohel or a Mishkan, and then we have the name of Yaakov, either Yaakov or Yisrael. So clearly there's a poetic nature there, but that's not even what I'm referring to. If you look at the next Pasuk, it says, Kinechalim Nitayo Kiganos, like streams spread out, like gardens, Alei Nahar, by the river. Ka'ahalim nata Hashem ka'arazim alemayim. Like ahalim and like arazim. So I want to focus on those two words, ahalim and arazim. Right? Because uh, what's fascinating about it is that the word ahalim, you look at Rashi there, Rashi says he gives two pshatim. Either um, ahalim refers to um, a, a kind of a spice, it says like lashon morv ahalos, myrrh and aloes. So it could be the word ahalim means aloes, but what does that word ahalim sound much more like? It sounds like the word ohel. And in fact, the, um, so it says that the, the tents of Klaistral are like ahalim nata Hashem, which Hashem planted. Now that word nata, which means to plant, can also, it doesn't just refer to a planting like, um, you know, um, ber- um, herbiage in the ground. 
Um, I was going to mix up herbage with verbiage, which would have been nice and poetic, but not what I intended. Um, there, the pun would not have been intended. Um, but in general, when the Torah does it, the pun is most often intended. So, for example, here, ka'ahalim, the word ahalim, so you could plant herbage in the ground, or you could even plant a tent in the ground. The word ahalim, which might mean a lowes, so Rashi quotes another pshat that it means a tent. But let's say it means a lowes, a kind of, of herbage. So the Chumash particularly uses the word choice Ahalim, which sounds like Ohel. So we said that the Ohel Yaakov in the Mishkan Secha Yisrael, so um, we're, that's what we're describing here. In the very next Pasuk, the Chumash decides to use the word Ahalim to describe the spices, uh, which sounds like Ohel. And the word Nata, which means to plant, can also mean, it can refer to planting a tent. When you put the, the peg of a tent in the ground and you set up a tent, it's the same word as nata. While we're here as well, it says, ka'ahalim nata Hashem ka'arazim alemayim. Not just like aloes which Hashem planted, but like cedars by the water. So arazim, cedars, those are a kind of tree. So if you look next to Ohalechayako, we have Mishkin Osecha Yisrael. And the Mishkan was made of of trees, a shittim wood. It was made of it was made of different kinds of trees. So we have arazim here, which could while ahalim parallels ohel, so arazim parallels mishkan. So you know, and this is just one example within a poem where you find clear word choice that's meant to hark back to earlier in the pasuk, and there are many other such examples. Now I'll give you I'll give you one from last week's parsha, which really st- stands out to me, and. And before I do, I'll, I'll, I'll preface once again that I'm not just here to give you examples of different times that the, the Torah or Tanakh employs a very specific word choice that seems to wax poetic, but what, I'm, what, I, what I want us to focus on and try to understand is why, in fact, the Torah cares so much about this, because that's a question that we will have to come back to. But anyway, an example from last week's Parsha, Parsha's Chukas, we have the story of the serpents. Right, the serpents, the fiery serpents, the poisonous serpents that are pursuing Klal Yisrael after they complained about the Mun. So we know that Hashem commands Moshe Rabbeinu to make his own serpents, make his own saraf um, on, on a pole, which he's going to somehow use to help cure the Bnei Yisrael, at least uh, on some level. And the Chumash goes as far to tell us that Moshe Rabbeinu makes a nachash of nechoshes. He makes a snake or a serpent out of copper or brass, whatever nechoshes means. Pashtus, it means copper. Now, copper serpent in English obviously does not sound very significant, but nachash nechoshes, that definitely does seem to wax poetic. It sounds alike. Nachash nechoshes, nun ches shin. You have it in both words. So what's the significance of that? And Rashi tells us right there, that's lashon no fellow lashon, that yes, the, um, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu chose very carefully what he was going to use. He specifically wanted to use nechoshes, which sounded like nachash. Now, Rashi doesn't really explain his answer, but apparently there's something that, he, that Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was onto something. And the question is, what, what was he onto? There is a Ramban over there that comments, um, I think he invokes Rashi, um, but he basically explains that apparently Moshe had this deeper understanding that words, at least in Lashon HaKodesh, that sound similar are intrinsically connected on some level, that apparently they're related, and that they share certain spiritual metaphysical elements. 
And apparently Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to, com- so to somehow add weight to the nace, the miracle that was taking place. Last week we spoke about the serpent on the pole, that the whole message was that serpents are not what cause life or cause death, but doing the right thing causes death. Serving Hashem properly causes life. It all has to do with your relationship with Hashem. And so part of the whole point of using a serpent to fight fiery serpent with fiery serpents was essentially to demonstrate that it's not about the serpents, that the serpent can sort of be an aid in causing life. So Moshe Rabbeinu, in a sense, to add weight to the nachash that was being used to counteract the other nachashim, he added nachoshes to it. And by adding nachoshes, he kind of multiplied, you know, the nachash um, um, you know, um, exponentially somehow by putting nachoshes with nachash. Now, obviously, uh, that, that's hard to understand, but clearly it was not just Moshe Rabbeinu playing games over here saying, hey, you know what would be clever? I'm going to put a copper serpent. Isn't that funny? So clearly it's not just that. What I'm hopefully demonstrating to you is that puns and things like wordplay are not just things that annoying people find interesting, but apparently the Torah has this great value for these things. So what I want to, again, try to discover is why. And, you know, we can go on forever giving different examples of poetic expressions in Tanakh and and wordplay. You find it throughout. You find it with the names of people in Tanakh, Yaakov. What does the name Yaakov mean? Um, Is it the Akev of Esav? Or is it the fact that 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 Esav refers to Yaakov as a trickster? The name Yisrael has meaning. All names in Tanakh have this um, aspect of wordplay and different meanings. There's nothing that's meaningless. So every word is weighed out very carefully. But let's, let's look at another example. This one is where, and really, my focus is not so much on the example as much as my focus is on the Ramban's comment on this example. So this comes up in Sefer Vayikra. It's either Parshas Emor or Bahar. I think it's in Parshas Emor because it sounds like uh, the Chumash is describing uh, Sefer Omer here, which comes up in Parshas Emor. Um, the, the alternative would be that it's talking about the Sphira for Shemitah, but I think it's talking about uh, Sphira Omer. And the, 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 the Raman's the comment can be found in Parak Chav Gimel Pasuket Aleph. So if it's Parak Chav Gimel, it sounds like a Parshas Emor thing. But anyway, the, listen to what the Ramban says. He's referring to the Pasuk that says, Mimacharas HaShabas HaShaviyas, and the, the Lashon of Sheva Shavasos. It's talking about seven weeks, whatever that means. So says the Ramban, Aval, However, mimacharas hashabas hashavias, the phrase mimacharas hashabas hashavias, from the morrow of the, well, we'll translate loosely, the seventh Shabbos. So that phrase, v'sheba shabasos, and the subsequent phrase, sheba shabasos, says the Ramban, lo yitakin lafarishosam yom tov. Don't say that the second phrase, don't say that both of them are referring to a Yom Tov. Right? Shabbos can sometimes mean the seventh day of the week, sometimes it means a Yom Tov. In the context of Sfer Omer, it means Pesach. But he says, don't say, right, don't, don't interpret them both as meaning referring to the festival rest day that, um, as it was before. Aval Amarbo, Unklus Lashon Shavua. Unklus tells us that it's an expression, this Lashon of Shabbos, is an, ex- is an expression of week. Shabbos does not al- always mean Shabbos Kodesh, but Shabbos means week. Shabbos is a collection of seven days. That's what the word Shabbos means. And sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily mean Shabbos Kodesh. So the Ramban just says here, when it says, from the morrow of the seventh 
Shabbos, it means the seventh week. V'sheba Shabbosos. It doesn't mean seven Shabbos Kodeshes. It means seven weeks. So why is that significant? So says the Ramban, V'imkain, and if so, Yehu shtev l'shonos b'pasak echad. Um, says, says, the, uh, says the Ramban, you have in this one Pasuk, you have the word Shabbos coming up twice with different meanings. In one context, in the same Pasuk, the word Shabbos refers to the Yom Tov, or refers to the Holy Rest Day. And yet, in the same Pasuk, when the word comes up again, it refers to weeks. Now why is that? Isn't that that's a little bit confusing, right? Why would the Chumash go out of its way to use the same word twice, and it should have different meanings in the same sentence. That's kind of confusing. But says the Ramban, Vahamafarshim Amru, the commentators say, in the art scroll of Ramban says that he's referring to the Ibn Ezra, they say, Kihu Tzachos. This is Derech Tzachos, the way of Tzachos. We'll have to um, define that term. I'll give you what art scroll says in just a second. Actually, I'll give it to you now. Art scroll says, Derech Tzachos means the way of elegant expression or the way of eloquent expression. Maybe we'll go with um, um, Tzachos as elegant. So apparently using the similar, uh, similar Lashon, even if it's going to have a different meaning later, even if it might be somewhat confusing, but for the purpose of Derech Tzachos, we're going to use that word instead of a different word. And then the Ramban gives another example. Kimo, like a Pasuk in Shoftim, Perek Yud, Pasuk Dalid. Rochvim al shloshim ayarim ushloshim ayarim lahem. The word ayarim comes up twice in this pasuk. The translation is, they rode thirty colts, and they owned thirty towns. So colts is a kind of young horse, a young male horse. So the word ayarim we use to refer to horse. And then for cities or towns, it uses the word ayarim. And they rode 30 colts and they owned 30 towns or 30 cities. Now, the Navi could have made things much more simple by um, using the word sus, maybe, to refer to the young horse. Maybe you want it to be more accurate, more, more specific. But for some reason, it used the word ayarim twice in the same pasuk, and it has different meanings. But apparently, this is derech tzachos. It's elegant speech. Now... While you may be thinking about what that might mean, I want to point to another Rishon who uses the same expression in a very different Pasuk. We find, and this is one of my favorite examples of wordplay in all of Tanakh. The first time I saw this, I noticed it immediately, which speaks to how obvious it was. You, know, you find very often in Tanakh, you'll, you'll find... Um, some more explicit versions of these puns or wordplay. You know, you look through Sefer Yishayahu, whom I'm not quoting tonight, um, but he has plenty of examples of this really amazingly, you know, poetic expressions, how the word choice, it just fits so well when you see the letter combinations. But the one I'm bringing you right now comes from the Navi from Tsefania, one of the Treyasar, Imperic Bey's Pasuk Dalad. Tsefania is describing the downfall of the different Plishti cities or or uh, provinces. And so he says as follows: Ki aza azuva tihia va'ashklon lishmama ashdod batsaray migarshua ve'ekron te'aker. So I'm going to simplify this a little bit. There are four places he references: Aza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. So Aza would be you know Gaza. Right, for those who are into linguistics, like clearly I am here. So we know that uh, Gaza 
um, is, is, we, we say Gaza, but it's really referring to Aza. So why is it with the G sound? So the real proper way to say the ayin is with the guttural sound, ayin. So that's how Gaza came to be. And similarly for Sodom and Gomorrah, so why is it Gomorrah? Isn't it Amorah? But it's Amorah with an ayin. And so, um, you know, when that got transferred into and transposed into, you know, other pronunciations, it, it ended up taking on the G sound because the guttural ayin um, can sound like a G sometimes. But anyway, not what we're focusing on now. What we are focusing on is the name of these four places, Aza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Now, if you look at the, at the words, so not each word has a perfect parallel in its poetic expression, but some of them are amazing. So, for example, Aza, Azuva. Aza will be made sad. Right? Aza, Azuva. Aza, Azuva, Tihia. The Ashkelon Lishmama. Ashkelon is going to be desolate, so we have the Shin sound. Ashkelon Lishmama. That's not as good. Ashdod Batsarai Migarshuha. So, Ashdod in the afternoon, Yigarshuha, it's going to be driven away. So, you have the Shin in Yigarshuha and Ashdod. Okay, those are not as good, but the last one. So, we have the first one and the last one are the best. Aza Azuva is the first one. The last one is Ekron Te'aker. Ekron is going to be uprooted, but, you know, obviously, again, in English, doesn't, it's not that significant. But in Hebrew, Ekron, Ayin Kufresh, Eker, Ekron, Te'aker is going to be uprooted. Te'aker is tough. Ayin Kufresh. We have the Ayin Kufresh in both places. Ekron, Te'aker. Now, if you look at the Radak here, look what the Radak says. The Radak on the words, Kiaza Azuva, Tihia, listen to his Lashon. Aza Azuva, Derech Tzachos. This, this expression of Aza Azuva is in the way of Tzachos. Lashon nofel al halashon. The expression falls upon the expression, meaning they sound similar. And even though, you know, not every letter is perfectly parallel, you know, Aza Azuva, it's not exactly the same Sharesh, it's not as good as Nachash Nechoshes, but clearly there's wordplay, clearly it's, it, it's poetic, it's meant to sound like one another. Fast forward to what the Radak says on the words ve'ekron te'aker. Listen to his lashon. Lashon nofel al lashon. The expression falls upon the expression. Derch tzachos in the way of tzachos. So we keep on seeing this. The Ramban mentions derch tzachos. The, the, the Radak mentions derch tzachos. What is this derch tzachos? So we're going to come back to it in just a moment. While I have you, I'm going to mention one more source, which is much later, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz in Sichos Musr. He has a piece in Sichos Musr. I believe it's in Parshas Vayeshev. He has seven monumental pieces in Parshas Vayeshev, and I think what I'm about to say comes from one of them. He has a piece devoted to Mida Keneged Mida. Mida Keneged Mida, which literally means measure for measure, but I'm going to give it a different translation in just a second. Mida Keneged Mida, measure for measure, we know is the way Hashem judges mankind. Which means, measure for measure, something about what you did wrong, let's say, for example, you're going to get punished in a way that's going to resemble the act that you did wrong. Or the reverse, if you did something right, so Hashem will bless you in that area. So, Rav Chayim just points out, and he asks it as a question. And a similar question that we've been dealing with tonight, which is, why does the Torah care so much about wordplay and word choice? Like, is, is it just trying to be cutesy? You know, cutesy is, you know, it's, it's good for people like you and me, you know, I, I'm very cute. Um, and so, so for me, it works out. But for the Torah, you know, you'd hope that Moshe Rabbeinu was trying more than just to be cute when he used a nachash nechoshas. Or, or, or Hashem, um, you know, um, in, in, throughout the Torah. But says Rav Hashem Levitz, I'll give you a couple of examples. 
Notice that when the Dor HaMabal was about to be destroyed, or when they were being destroyed, I should say, in the middle of the flood, when the Chumash describes how the waters were pouring down from Shemayim, the one of the words that the Chumash uses is the word Rabbah. Rabbah, which means a lot, Reish, Beis, Hey. A lot, very much so. So says the Medrash, so you'll notice that before Hashem decided he was going to destroy the world, what did Hashem see? V'yar Hashem ki Rabbah ra'as Hadam ba'aretz. Hashem saw that very much was the evil of man upon the world. So says the Medrash, look at the Midah Kenegad Midah. Hashem saw a lot of evil, and now there's a lot of water. Rabbah, Rabbah. The Medrash points out, once again, the connection between the words Rabbah. It says, Rev Chaim Shmulevitz, these aren't his exact words, but big whoop, or a very Rabbah whoop. But, but really, who, who cares? Who cares that it has the same word? Like, do you really see the Mizah Kenegad Mizah there? Like, like, well, well, like, like, what does Rabbah have to do with Rabbah? Who cares? Like, what's the Chumash trying to get at? And he points out another example. Um, this example is, um, maybe speaks a little bit louder, but um, maybe not in terms of the actual impact, right? A flood that destroys the entire world has a lot of impact. But this one is something that I think we can relate to a little bit better, but we still have the same question. When... Yehuda and Tamar have their whole situation. So just before Yehuda decides or, um, to have Tamar executed because he thought that she was sleeping around when she should not have been, so we know that she pulls out the objects that Yehuda left by her as a, as a, as a collateral for the money that he didn't you know that he didn't pay her yet, and she says. Oh, you see these objects? Hakerno, please recognize and see who they belong to. So the Medrash points out that Lushan of Hakerno, please recognize, where have we seen these words earlier? And in fact, we saw this earlier at Mechiris Yosef, when Yosef was being sold. When Yosef was being sold, so Yehuda, who led that whole Mechira, we know that the, in that story, the Ksonis Pasim, Yosef's jacket, was brought back to Yaakov, where the same words were uttered. Hakerna, do you recognize this? Please recognize this and see where this coat came from. Who does it belong to? And says the Medrash, Yehuda was stricken with the words Hakerna. That the words Hakerna, which were used um, at Mechiras Yosef, those words would come back to haunt Yehuda, as it were, in the story of, of Tamar. And the question, once again, is, you know, is that really the big, you know, the, the, the big um, blow to Yehuda? The fact that Tamar used the words hakerna? Like, is that the real, you know, clincher? You know, the whole entire story with Tamar, how humiliating it must have been, there was so much more than just Tamar using the words hakerna. Like, who cares that she said the words recognize, please? The whole situation was a terrible situation. He lost two of his sons in that story. Then he ended up, uh, you know, um, sleeping with a woman that he thought was a Zona. And then, she, uh, then he found out that he was the one who impregnated her. You know, the whole entire story is pretty incredible. Who cares about the, those two words, Hakerna, please recognize? Or in other words, who cares about the wordplay? Asks Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. And the answer, he explains, is that the measure for measure is not, you know, merely just, you know, you get what you deserve. But there's something, you know, the, the, the Lushan I want to use to explain Mida Kenegad Mida is poetic justice. 
Now, poetic justice is a very funny expression, and I like how, particularly for the sheer, it waxes quite poetic. But poetic justice means literally what we understand to be mida connected mida, that you get exactly what you deserve, that everything that happened is precisely the way it's supposed to be. It's just interesting that he uses the word poetic, that expression. I think that English expression has a lot of significance for what we're talking about right now, because poetic seems to mean that something just fits right and perfectly. It just, that, that's exactly the best way of, of phrasing something. That, when we say that something is poetic, it's like, oh, wow, that's a great choice of words. And when it comes to Mida Keneged Mida, the whole point of Mida Keneged Mida is that the onlookers, the person who is a recipient of the Mida Keneged Mida, or observers of the Mida Keneged Mida, are supposed to understand that Hashem's justice was in fact poetic. It was precise. That Hashem did everything exactly the way He did it. And apparently, through the Mida Keneged Mida, you're supposed to understand what the person did wrong on a certain level. You're supposed to understand that Hashem was responding in kind and in kind, meaning that parallel response. And that's what Midah Kenegad Midah is. If the Chumash is telling us the word Rabbah just before the Dor Hamabal gets destroyed, and then as they're getting destroyed, we find the word Rabbah, that wordplay is telling us something. That there's, a, there, that there's apparently a connection between that which Hashem observed and then what Hashem ultimately did to them. Know that what Hashem did to them was not just a fluke, that the world got destroyed, but Hashem was specifically responding in kind to a generation that had become so corrupt. Right when the when the it's interesting that the the Chumash also tells us that the word kinishches, Hashem was going to bring a hashchasa, a destruction on the world that was already nishches. The word hashchasa has two connotations. It means destroyed and it also means corrupt. The nation that was corrupt or the the people that were corrupt would be also destroyed because of their hashchasa. They would experience a hashchasa. That's not an accident. That's on purpose. And when we find the words hakerno twice in the two stories, right? So, so we, if we find the, the Mechiris Yosef has the words hakerno and the story of Yehuda and Tamar has the words hakerno, the Chomish is trying to tell us that at that point when Yehuda heard those words, that in fact was the clincher. That was when Yehuda realized that everything he was experiencing was a response to prior actions of his own. And the examples go so far. What is the whole aspect of derch tzachos? What does it mean, derch tzachos? It's elegant, eloquent speech. Why does the Torah care so much about wordplay? You might recall we had a workshop, not a workshop, um, uh, um, uh, a Real Talk Torah, a bunch of months ago, uh, when it came up in the Daf and Psachim, we were talking about Lashon Naki, but not just Lashon Naki, right? The, the, there, there are different standards of speech, right? There's being a manuvel with your mouth, nivel peh, and the Gemara in Pesachim is talking about something altogether different. You want to learn about Nivel Peh, so you go to the Gemara in Shabbos and Daflam and Gimel talks about Nivel Peh. But if you want to learn about Lashon Tzach Venaki, Tzach, that word Tzach that we have from the Ramban, the Radak, so we're finding it here as well. In the Gemara, the Gemara talks about a Lashon of Naki, that's a Naki v'tzach. Rashi points it out there in the Gemara in Pesachim, uh, on Daf uh, Gimel. So there, there's a heightened level of speech. It's not just that we don't talk inappropriately, but every word we say is measured, and we try to use the exact and most precise word that communicates as accurately as possible and also as cleverly as possible what I'm trying to say. If something, and, and you know, if a word, if there are two equal words that I can use, but one word sounds similar to the context, to other words in the context that I'm speaking, guess what? Go for the pun. It's better to use a word that has similar sound 
to, to get that poetic effect. You know, sometimes, you know, and we, we think like, oh, you know, like, you know, he's, he's just being, you know, he's, he's just being fluffy. He's just, you know, using cutesy words. But you find this throughout, not just Tanakh, you find it in Postkim as well, that they have very specific word choice and they have, you know, they have wordplay. You know, the Gemara, for example, you know, in, in, also in Psachim, on Daf Test, when it's talking about the weasel that, um, you know, that might take away some of the chametz, that might move some of the chametz, even after you check the house. So the weasel will grab some of the chametz. And the Gemara has a. This is actually one of the, one of the best, you know, uh, um, puns I think in Gemara. Um, it, it talks about different opinions about um, what day was the fourteenth of Nisan or the fifteenth of Nisan that the weasel might come and take the take the chametz. And so the, the, there's a difference of opinion on you know whether or not you know it's going to make a difference of how much chametz is going to be available based on when you did your badika and the gemara just asks a question um khulda the weasel khulda neviahi is the khulda a prophetess right and the the idea being that how is the khulda going to know what date on the calendar it is but that line khulda neviahi is the khulda a prophetess that's that the joke is that there was actually a neviah one of the seven neviahs well, her name was actually khulda and she appears in the navi in sefer malachim so there was a there was a neviyah named Cholda. So you know you have that even in in the post in the shach and the taz you find it every now and then. I remember there was one case in Yerodea where um, one of them, the shach or the taz, I think it was the shach who was attacking the Ramah, and um, and either the shach or the taz, one of them was defending the Ramah, Rav Moshe Israelis. So among the lines of defense you find this expression where one of them said, Moshe visaraso emes, Moshe and his Torah are true. Now, this Lashon was just borrowed from, uh, from Parshas Korach, where really the Maimar Chazal, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that talks about Parshas Korach, when Korach descends to the grave and he screams out the words, Moshe visaraso emes. But now it's not used in reference to Moshe Rabbeinu, but it's being used in reference to the, the Ramah, whose first name was also Moshe. Now, why do they care to do this? You find this, you find this widely throughout the writings of, of, of Postkim. Um, um, you, know, you find it in Tanakh, you find it everywhere. So, what's the whole point? The point is that the Torah is so careful with its words. The Torah wants you to make the connections. Hashem uses word choice so that we could make connections, so that we can see how eloquent and perfect everything lines up. And obviously, you know, you can't state a full sentence using every word being the same word. But if you can choose a way that's eloquent versus choosing a way that's a little bit more sloppy, see, why, why not choose a way that's eloquent? You know, some of the greatest, you know, uh, f- um, features of a good speaker, especially in communicating Torah. So on the one hand, you know, you have Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you look at his writings and, he, and you, you see how he writes and he has that poetic expression, and it, it's so pure and pristine. And then, you know, on the other extreme, we have my Rebbe, Rav Yonason Sachs, um, to my knowledge, no relation, but everyone knows uh, now how, how he speaks. There's an eloquence, how he translates each word. Uh, you know, anytime he uses a Gemara term or a Lumdus term, he translates it in the most eloquent and elegant way. You know, his word choice is so measured. It's perfect. It's pristine. There, there, there is something that's beautiful about that. If not for Vyagdil Torah Vyadir, you know, just making Torah beautiful, but there's the idea, this Lashon Sachos, that there's a way of communicating something in the most pristine possible way. And there is a cleverness, there is a brilliance to, to you know, things like pun, puns and poetry, and we see it reflected in the Torah. Anyway, I hope um, you enjoyed that uh, journey, and I think that's all the time we have now for this Real Talk Torah. 
So until next time, keep it real, keep talking, and most importantly, keep the Torah. Thank you for joining us here at The Database.